Welcome to Say What? A Fresh Look at Old Sayings, the podcast which explores the origins, meaning, and value of old sayings, familiar expressions, and adages. I'm Dave Ellingson, adventurer, author, educator, and seeker of wisdom. Today's episode is part of a series of conversations entitled Life Journeys. And my guest is poet, educator, speaker, former student, and recently dad, Christian Page. Welcome, Christian. Thank you. Thank you. I'm excited to be here. Tell us a bit about your life journey, some of the the landmarks, the twists and turns and detours that have gotten you to this place in your life? Uh, so um, my story starts in Tacoma. Um, for those of you who don't know Tacoma, I won't refer to it as the city outside of Seattle. Um, I get to travel around a lot and I really love Tacoma. I think it's the greatest city on the planet. Um, so when I tell people when I travel, they ask where you're from, I tell them Tacoma. And if they have to Google it, that's just their job. And so um, my story starts there under the, sh the, the shadow of the Tacoma Dome. Um, I grew up here. I lived here for a majority of my life. Um, and now I've recently come back to provide a book in. Um, but yeah, my journey was, I I'd say, pretty simple. I mean, in terms of the way that I viewed the world. Um, I grew up, I went through uh, public school K through 12. I had a big culture shock going to private school 11 or K through 10, private school 11 and 12. Big culture shock there. Um, I ended up winning a scholarship through the Act 6 program um, that led me to the school where you were a professor. Um, I was at Trinity Lutheran College. I was the first person in my family to go and graduate uh, from a four-year university. Um, after that, I took on a role in education, um, and quietly, I was a poet on the side. Um, that quickly took off uh, due to a couple of videos that grabbed some attention. Um, just this last year, I was nominated for an Emmy. Uh, and now um, I'm back in my home community. I work for the city of Tacoma doing education outreach. Um, I'm still in the classroom, still doing things for youth. Uh, and things have come full circle now. I'm, I'm, I took inventory of things that were broken when I was younger. And now I, I've come back to fix them. And so I'm back here in Tacoma. It's interesting. Um, one of my majors in college was English. My mom was an English teacher, and she recited poetry to me growing up. I didn't really appreciate it until later in life, and now I am a, an amateur poet. What, when, did you, when did you begin to write poetry, and what was it about that that kind of uh, excited you? Yeah, I mean, I, I started writing poetry really early on. Um, my brother, uh, my brother is, uh, he's 10 years older than me. And uh, one of the things that he would do, I would go to like the high school football games and things with him. And um, I could recite rap lyrics of songs from memory. And so, hey, hey, come listen to my brother, come see. And, and I started off doing that. Um, I started to write original work. I'd say I was like maybe 11. Um, I started writing my own poetry, but uh, as I mentioned, I grew up in Tacoma. Um, and if you know anything about the area of Tacoma, especially during the 90s or the early 2000s, um, and what was going on in that time period, uh, to, to make a long story short, like carrying a diary or a journal or writing poetry was not the coolest thing on the planet. Um, you know, it, it was it was cause for uh, bullying and things like that in my life. 
Um, and so it wasn't something that I widely shared, right? It was something I kind of kept private, uh, but it was really inspired by my brother. Um, it really took off. My brother ended up, uh, he was in the, the Middle East during the war. Um, I, I guess we can call that, a, I'm gonna call it a war because my brother was deployed several times. Um, and so he was young. I mean, if I'm 11, he's 20 or 21. And you know, the, the way that we communicated with each other, uh, we didn't necessarily have the, the money to call long distance, but we would send him letters. And I, all the stuff I had been writing or practicing during that time, I would send to him. And so um, that's where I started. Uh, I started performing around 18. Um, then it took off from there. You mentioned uh, being bullied. You mentioned uh, the reaction of maybe your peers and others. What, what were the things you were writing about back then? Uh, I mean, it, it was really just a, a way to process. Um, I think things that were happening to me or feelings or, right, like you're, um, <laughs> to, to be sciencey for a second, you're, you're going through the process of apoptosis. Your hormones are everywhere when you're a teenager. All this crazy stuff is happening. And you know, your, your world is this big at that time. And so I wrote about, I mean, literally everything in the same way that people would keep journals and write at the end of the day, here's what happened, here's how the world was going, here are the feelings that I felt. Um, that's what I was writing about. And so I wrote about the world that I was seeing. Um, and I really think that that's a poet's job, you know, is, is to, to reflect the time period and to talk about the stories and the experiences that they have. And now I'm older and my world is wider. And so I, I, I write about wider concepts um, and the way that I see the world from the vantage point of being 27, being African-American and being in a world with, you know, I mean, we're living in a historic time at this period and understanding or processing through like, what is the meaning of the actions of the events that's happening? And what does that mean in the scale of time that we're on the planet? And so um, I believe that's a poet's job. There's great poets who have come before me and I, I kind of take on that mantle of responsibility of how am I ensuring that this story gets told? So it began really early for you. Um, can you remember, I'm curious, any of those early poems and what, what some of them may have said. Oh man, um, I don't know. I don't know if I could if I could recall one from that early. I, I'm sure I have a notebook stuffed away somewhere in my little library about <laughs> uh, <laughs> things that I've written. I remember one. Uh, there was one that I wrote to my brother, and it was just a, it was a what if poem, mm. uh, and it would say it was what if line 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 what if line line line. Not a lot of technical skill or things like that involved, but um, you know, I guess I was I was a a twelve year old pacifist at the time, and wondering, you know, like what if what if this didn't happen, right? What if um, what if nine eleven hadn't occurred? What if uh, we didn't decide to occupy territory in the Middle East? What if you know then my brother wouldn't be there, you know? And so um, and I, that's one that I remember because it was impactful for me, but. Some of the other things, I don't know if I could if I could rattle one off the top of my head from here. So, so obviously your your brother was um, a role model in many ways and a mentor. Um, as we go on our life journey, there are mentors. Who are who are some of the other mentors that have inspired you along the way? Yeah, man. Oh man, um, this is my favorite conversation because <laughs> uh, there's so many like great people, and I think. Uh, you know, one of the, the biggest disservices that happens in the world is uh, people will gain a ton of knowledge or a ton of wisdom or understand and navigate different spaces and then not turn around and pass that knowledge on. And so I think mentors are so important, right? Because they, 
They take what they've learned in the time period that they've been on earth and give it to someone behind them so that they can go around the obstacles that the person in front of them had to focus on. So um, a lot of my mentors are, are significantly older than me. Um, and I think that that's great, right? Because if, if I, I can get 65 years worth of knowledge at 22, you know, that's, that's a win for me. And so uh, one, of my, one of my mentors, and I say the most consistent mentor, is a man by the name of Larry Ofer. Um, I met Larry when I was in high school. Um, I was playing basketball at Stadium High School and he would roll in the cooler uh, and give us Gatorades. And so, I mean, he was just kind of like the community guy. Um, and eventually, uh, I didn't necessarily know, I always, I always knew I wanted to go to college, um, but with the way, you know, my family didn't have a ton of resources, so I had absolutely no idea of how to get there. And so basketball was the way that I thought that I was gonna go. Um, don't get me wrong, I was really good at basketball. Um, I ended up with a couple of like partial offers and things like that. But uh, Larry basically sat me down and it, I think this solidified our relationship is that he showed me um, the statistics of high school basketball players and how that translates to division one athletes. And then how division one athletes translates to NBA players. And I don't remember the, the percentage specifically, but I know it was extremely minimal. And then he showed me, right? Like of students who graduate from a four year university what would their median salary or this or that look like? And basically just broke it down and said, you know, um, I know that you've been given the narrative, especially as a black male, right? That your way to betterment or your way, it, it looks like this, it has looked like this. Your role models look like LeBron James or this guy or that guy. Um, but there are so many paths, right? That you could take in getting there. So I think Larry was played a big role in my life. Um, he solidified our relationship. Uh, Ronnie Gordon is another really big figure. Um, Ronnie Gordon was my ninth grade honors English teacher. He was the first black male teacher that I ever had. Um, and he introduced me to a world that I didn't even know existed, right? I was, I was writing poetry, but he introduced me to names like uh, Langston Hughes, uh, Maya Angelou, County Cullen. Uh, I mean, we could go down the list, right? But he had the, uh, I, I, don't even, I would just say like the anthology of, of like radical thinkers or really brilliant individuals who have changed the world through art. And so um, Ronnie Gordon was a really big figure in my life. And I, I could do this dance all day, Dave. Uh, we <laughs> could talk about him, but I say, if I was naming two that were really important, um, those would be the two for me. Well, and and as you say, you know, you have been given something and therefore you want to give to others. And one of the, the great joys of my working with you at the college was you and several of your peers uh, created a mentoring program called the Hope Initiative, helping our people excel. And that still goes on. You graduated a number of years ago, but we still are mentoring at a local high school in Everett, Washington. Say a little bit more about, um, you know, the mentoring that you do and, and how you're passing it on. Uh, I think uh, the Hope Initiative was the, it was kind of the launching pad into understanding that, um, you know, I guess rewinding, uh, coming to college and being a first generation college student, uh, there were battles that had to happen before getting there. And once I, you know, like we, I, I got the letter saying that I won the scholarship. I got my acceptance letter saying that I was able to come to the school, right? And I feel like, you know, at 18, like, man, I got it figured out, you know, we've made it. Um, only to come to find out, right? Like there's a ton of things that you have to navigate um, being in that space, right? Like you have to understand the financial aid office. 
You have to understand your GPA. You have to understand how to be able to schedule your classes to be on time for graduation in four years. Um, you have to know how to meet with an academic advisor, right? Like we could go through all of these things and I had absolutely no context and I didn't even know what questions to ask. And so um, the HOPE initiative, right, was really us saying, you know, we, we've navigated these difficult waters. Um, we're all first-generation college students, some of us coming from, you know, other countries uh, and making way for ourselves here. And how are we ensuring that, like, students who we're in front of or students who are in our close proximity don't have to fight some of the battles that we fought? And so um, the HOPE initiative was really just birthed in the idea that we want to help other people excel. And for, you know, specifically students who will be the first in their family to do so. Um, I think that was a big launching pad. It took off. I, I worked at multiple um, universities and K-12 institutions after that. Uh, but the focus has really been, you know, how am I getting knowledge in the hands of students uh, at, an, at a time period or an age before I know that I got it? You know, if they're seven years ahead of me, great. Um, I want you to do better than I did. So that's the, the spirit, I guess, that, that continues. As you've been on the journey, I'm, I'm interested about some of those struggles you were talking about. And obviously your poetry helped you to reflect on those struggles and to make some sense of things and and coming to college. What, what have been the, the struggles and how have those struggles shaped who you are today? Ah, man, um, who? <laughs> it was a time so I, I think um some of the struggles really started uh i'd say even prior to college um i had mentioned transferring to a private school and for context right like uh people may not know the histories of, of things that have occurred um but like if you understood the history of redlining and racial housing covenants um what that's meant for economics especially in the city that i grew up in uh, I went from a school district that at the time had a 55% graduation rate, um, was majority students of color, um, right? Like in all the things culturally that came along with that, like that was the normal that I was used to experiencing. Um, and I ran into a huge culture shock going to a place that was predominantly white, that was extremely affluent. Um, and you know, there were, there were stereotypes and things that I ran into. There was discrimination and certain things that I ran into. Um, but I think the hardest thing was um, I started to ask the question, like, why don't I have this? You know what I mean? Um, and I think that there was some some resentment that showed up and some anger that showed up. Uh, and then getting to college, right? I really think that it that anger and resentment fueled me. Um, but at the same time, right, like uh, going to college, I was pulled away from my family. You know, I'm used to, you know, my mom's in the other room, my dad's over here. My sister's over here, my brother's over there. And if there was something that was difficult, either I wrote about it or I was close to, um, you know, I, I was close enough to somebody in proximity to have that discussion. Uh, but I left for school and I was a, a, an important part of my family. I've had a job since I was 14. Um, I've watched my sister, I've taken care of my nephews, um, all of these different things. And when I left, uh, I felt a sense that like I had dropped the ball, you know what I mean? And and that resulted in, um, I would call it at this point, it resulted in a depression. Um, and in my sophomore year of college, um, I was at a place of deciding if I still wanted to be alive uh, for a number of factors, right? Like um, there've been some family tragedies. Uh, there had been people who lost their lives. There had been um, my youngest, uh, one of my younger cousins, he was kind of, um, 
I'm trying to give the analogy. If, if I was driving on the motorcycle, he would be in the sidecar. We were always together and he ended up being diagnosed as um, a schizophrenic and bipolar, right? And so he went through his own struggles and I, all of that's happening while I'm trying to navigate school. You know what I mean? And, and so when those worlds ran into each other and I felt that I wasn't there to provide for my family in the way that I have, um, you know, it, it got dark and it got difficult. And, um, you know, by the grace of God, I came out on the other side. Uh, but I think that's another thing when it comes to mentoring is there's an understanding when you can see that in another student, you know? Um, and I don't know if that would have showed up had people not really been close to me. And there were a lot of people close to me who, kn who didn't know that I had struggled through that. Um, on the surface, I had a 3.5 GPA. Um, I went on to be the president at that school. I had, you know, three jobs. I was doing this, that, and on the outside, it looked golden, right? But, um, you know, when you're able to spot that in other people, I think that's another piece of mentoring is that your social emotional learning and your mental health is a big part of that. And so, um, yeah, I think those are two major struggles that I faced. Um, and some of that bleeds over into professional life, but I think uh, one of the things that's cool is, is being with my mentors uh, and developing, I, I guess we could call them coping skills, but I think developing different affirmations for myself, you know, and understanding like, I made it through that. We're on the other side of it. I've been strong before, I can be strong again, you know? And so, um, yeah, at, at risk of belaboring the point on that question, uh, <laughs> those are some of the some of the struggles. Yeah. Well, if, if you were to pick out a poem to kind of share some of that journey, is there is there one that comes to mind that you could share? We we obviously want to hear some of your poetry, but what what's, what would be an example of that that poetry that that kind of captures your life and journey a little bit? Yeah, um, I think it's, and I'm not just touting this one because it's the one that's like gotten the recognition, but. Um, I think the one that connects with most folks, especially when I'm mentoring, is a poem that I wrote called Trees. Um, it's actually, it's the poem that received the, the Emmy nomination. Um, and it, I guess it talks about that journey of, of coming from Tacoma and, you know, being where I am now. And, but it's a, it's a broader story, right? Uh, because it's, it's not only myself, it's majority of the scholars who came from the same area as me. You know, um, I had mentioned earlier that the graduation rate was 55% in our school district. Um, we've all come back, right? After we've graduated from college, some of us are in the classroom, some of us are administrators, some of us work for the city. Uh, and the graduation rate now in our, in our town is almost 90%, you know what I mean? And so coming on the other side and, and making that change. And so um, I think trees is the one, is it? I, I think that's it. the one I'll go for. Let's hear it, yeah. Awesome. Um, so read is this. They called us low income. They called us at risk. Always speaking from a deficit, didn't realize that my learned experience was prerequisite to be a leader in this community. How could you ever really know unity if you've never seen the broken? They tried to slam the door shut, but my man Tim held it open. See, they forgot to call us scholars. Forgot to call us. Knowledge dip sociologist, unapologist, polished with dreams of being our brother's keeper long before it was common in politics. See, we were the seeds that nobody expected to be trees, but we tend to supersede expectations, defy statistics. Never standing complicit, leaders aren't just in our titles, it's synonymous with our existence. We were the roses that grew from the concrete, became the garden that grew from the ghetto, became the forest that grew from the forgotten, proceeded without caution, never waited to blossom. See, this is the part of the story where somebody finally saw them. It started in a garage. 
humble beginnings in its early stage where teachers who cared worked extended days without extended pay just to see the students walk across that prestigious stage and not holding regular diplomas. No, see, these were degrees for change. They gave us the tools, watered our seeds, never looked surprised at what their investment would bring a network full of leaders from the hill to the CD, educated and ready to meet the city's needs. We changed campuses, brought perspectives to private schools, navigated the unspoken rules of colleges that weren't built for us, with stories too unique for the common application, collective determination and the cadre information, we made an impact that can only be measured in scientific notation. We became teachers, preachers, scientists, activists, lawyers, employers, nonprofit founders, and PhDs. But ultimately when watered, we became trees. A wise person plants seeds so the descendants will no shade. The investment that was made receives returns every day. What started as little ripples has now become waves and generational trajectories have been completely changed. Now this, this is community development. And it doesn't start with tall buildings, renovations, or detaining all youth. It starts with homegrown leaders unafraid to speak their truth, able to bear fruit because they're connected with deep roots to a city that raised them and respects what they do. When the community stands together, then mountains become movable. Lights in the collective are too bright to be dimmed. See, we didn't love our cities because they were beautiful. Our cities are beautiful because we love them. So don't call us anything that starts with the deficit. Call us scholars, call us leaders, call us change, call us trees, and discover what happens when you decide to water a seed. Call us the future and watch us as we continue to bear fruit and what they told us was the desert. Wow, thank you. That is powerful, powerful. The words, but but obviously the, the, the sentiment, the feeling, the story, the journey behind that. Um, great, great poem. Thank you. Thank you. Okay, so obviously it couldn't be a more appropriate time in a sense to hear that important message, which I think is a message of hope. Um, here we are in the time of pandemic. Um, the city of Minneapolis has exploded due to um, a very tragic uh, killing, a uh, black man, and uh, obviously not the first uh, of that kind of tragic uh, injustice. Um, I think I think of uh, Langston Hume, Hughes's poem, A Dream Deferred. What happens to a dream deferred, right? And Share, share your reactions to what is happening now and, and um, what wisdom um, we can learn from what's going on um, as these days unfold. Uh, um, this has been heavy, uh, I think over the last, man, I mean, and it's, it comes in its seasons and I, I don't think it ever really stops, right? There's, um, my hope is that it will stop in the future. But I was reading, uh, I, I was reading on, here goes Twitter. I was reading on Twitter the other day and somebody had posted a list um, since the beginning of 2019 of all of the black bodies who had been killed by police, whether regardless if they got news coverage or not. Um, and the list was written in such small print that I could not read it on my phone. And I mean, it, it, it's really jarring and it's consistently jarring um, at the idea that, you know, people have equated, you know, my body, our bodies, black people's bodies, either with danger 
or right like and again I, I i never advocate for somebody to commit a crime and i would never be in a space of justifying people to commit a crime and in this most recent case with with mr floyd right like um i don't think even if he did and we, he won't get his fair day in trial so we won't know even if he did like attempt to cash a fraudulent check right i don't think that the penalty for that is death you know what I mean? And so um, I've been really heavy on the idea that like, this is not new. This has existed for a long time. Um, and the other side of it, the uprisings are not new either, right? This has been happening since the 1700s, if we are to understand and know our history, right? Um, yeah, my my heart consistently hurts. And my the biggest thing, and I, I, I do trainings and stuff for college students around race and diversity. And I was in one of the classrooms, I was at Seattle University, and one of the students said, um, you know, one of my professors told me that history repeats itself, and I don't believe that, uh, you know, history, because there's new people in the equation. And what he said to me was, history doesn't repeat itself, but often it rhymes, right? Mm -hmm. And so seeing now the story of, of, of Mr. Floyd, right, now we're, we're talking about him Right, and we could look back at the rhyme of, right, we could look back at Rodney King, we could look back at the rhyme of Emmett Till, we could look back at the rhyme, and we can continue to go backward. I mean, in some examples are in 2015, 2016, and just, you know, I mean, a few months before this happened, we're talking about Ahmaud Arbery. And so the, the conversation for me is really in a space of um, how are we moving differently to ensure that this trend doesn't happen in the future? And to me, like, it's being openly and actively anti-racist. And I mean, I could I could talk about this for the rest of the day, but if I if I'm moving and I, I don't want to jump to the solution because I think there's space to mourn and lament. But if we're if we're in a, a a conversation, a lot of people will ask me like, what do I do now? How do I help? How do I fix this? Um, I think I'll just read this. Is it okay? I, I posted this on Facebook the other day, um, and I think this captures my thoughts pretty well. At risk of rambling, I'd rather read this. I, I titled an open letter and it says, Dear whoever put this name here, um, don't share with me that you're outraged. Tell the police. Don't tell me that you hate discriminatory policy or practice. Tell your lawmakers and tell your ballot. Don't tell me that racial discrimination is real. Tell those who refuse to believe it. Don't ask me if I saw the video. I saw the last one and the one before that. I've seen discrimination and unnecessary force in real life. Don't spend your time advocating to the choir. Go somewhere where they can't hear us, where they won't hear us. Don't wait for it to be captured on film, for a mother to be crying in a press conference, for a shareable post on social media, for a hashtag to drop, for the Martin Luther King or Black History Month celebration, for a politically panderable moment, advocate without ceasing. Challenge beliefs that result in tragedy. Use your influence. I already see the problem. I need you to help someone else who doesn't. Love your anti-racist black friend. And uh, I think that captures my thoughts. The the line in there, advocate without ceasing. I think of the 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 line, uh, pray without ceasing, that the Apostle Paul used. I, I know you come from a faith perspective. How does your faith inform? that advocating without ceasing and and the way you pass that on to your beautiful little daughter zion yeah um i think i learned a lot uh 
you know, I, I've always been uh, in the church. I was raised in the church. Uh, my dad was the choir director. My mom was this, that, right? Like I was, I was there. Um, but I think the the brand of Christianity that I grew up in um, was not as vocal or as active in these conversations. And it wasn't until um, I think probably college and really interacting with people from different denominations, and I ran into the Lutherans, right? And <laughs> um, there's a big proponent of justice in that conversation. And so um, I've always known myself to be someone, uh, right? I bet on underdog sports teams, um, you know, and. And when it was really revealed to me, um, I was learning from the prophet Isaiah, right? And, and really talking about what does it mean for us to be Christians who are oriented toward justice, regardless of what other things are in the world, regardless of right what doctrine, your theology has to be or, orientated or oriented towards justice. And so, um, yeah, I, I really found my voice in that conversation, I think, while I was at Trinity. Um, and since then, right, it has been something that I do, again, praying without ceasing, advocating without ceasing. Um, the, the way that I see it, uh, and I don't know if you, I think you met Abraham while we were both working there. Abraham was a registrar for a couple of months. And um, he used to say this to me. He say, if not you, then who? If not here, then where? And if not now, then when? And so I carry that in my pocket. And I, I think I have an obligation as a person you know, who believes in Christ to love people as Jesus would, you know, and I think the only way, right? And I mean, and coming back to this, uh, we both know Michael Kinsman. Michael Kinsman was talking about this recently uh, in terms of, you know, the things that are happening. And he said, I remember Jesus coming into unjust situations and turning tables, right? And so um, I just have an understanding, right, that if something needs to be corrected, if justice needs to be inserted, that if I am a person who, who has this type of faith, that I have to insert myself into the conversation. It would be a disservice and a, I think a distrust, right? And the and the savior whom I serve that if I don't think that he would protect me as I interrupt or advocate. Well, your life and your your work and your family really embody that mission, that vocation, if you will. How can how can people who are listening to this podcast contact you what are you available for and maybe kind of just tell us um, how you might be available to help others as they journey in their their lives uh, so um, if you are looking to find me or my work uh, I'm on all forms of social media as uh, C page speaks so it's at C P A I forgot how to spell my name C P A I G E S P E A K S um, it's where all of my, my socials and uh, if anything is posted online, that's where you'll be able to find it. Um, my website is just christianpage.com, same spelling on page. Um, but the work that I do uh, is I work primarily with students in the K-12 sector or with uh, teachers or people who, who work with you. Um, and I, I, I provide trainings on uh, culturally responsive teaching, on uh, race equity and diversity and inclusion. Um, any of those things, and especially if you're um, a group of individuals who is mentoring young people, um, I think one of the biggest things in the conversation about race um, is how we are racially socialized when we're young, right? What messages do we receive about people who are different than us and where do we get them from? And so those would be the ways to reach out to me. Um, those are the things that I provide. And uh, yeah, that, that's how you can get a hold of me. This has been a... Um 
delightful, <clears throat> revealing, uh, and wonderful conversation. I thank you for taking the time, sharing of your life and your heart and your thinking. Um, can could would you be willing to send us out with a poem? Is there a poem that comes to mind that um, that would be a nice way of kind of pulling us together here at the end of this conversation? I think uh, I think this is a good one, and I think uh, keeping it on the the space of hope is that you know we're running into a lot of difficult things at this time. Um, I wrote this poem, you know, kind of as the stay at home orders were getting put in place. Uh, but I think, you know, with even more that's going on, um, hope is one of the most important things. And so, um, yeah, I think this is the poem I'm going to perform. It's called The Intersection. All right. Um, it says, I remember the intersection. Standing at the complicated crosswalk waiting for a yellow to turn green. For caution to become consent or content or comfort, I caught my emotions being deceptive, telling my eyes that tears of joy weren't cascading contradictions, but I can feel grief falling gracefully, knowing that even gravity shows mercy, that tears fall slowly, that release is transition. Overcoming is not an eviction, it's choosing to cross the street diagonally, walking through the mess of the intersection, knowing you are worth the traffic, accepting what is broken, bringing the shards with you, believing that one day they will become a window. I walked powerfully through the intersection, deceived in the best way possible, learning that joy and pain were adjacent corners waiting to be connected by my footsteps, that they could coexist. And I became familiar with my favorite contradiction, hope. Christian Page, thank you. Um, blessings on your journey. And um, again, wonderful to be with you. Likewise, thank you for having me. Until next time, I'm Dave Ellingson, and this has been Say What? A Fresh Look at Old Sayings, the podcast which explores the origin, meaning, and value of old sayings, familiar expressions, and adages. Tune in to say what on your mobile device, computer, or wherever you listen to favorite podcasts. In coming episodes in my Life Journey series, join me for conversations with singer-songwriter Rachel Kurtz, travel writer Rick Steves, and state legislator Sharon Tomiko Santos. For more information about my books and films, check out my website, dellingson.com. And thanks for listening.